the stage is set, the cards have been dealt. He is now no more than a puppet in the shadow of his own destiny. We are on the third episode of our coverage of The Shadow Out of Time by H.P. Lovecraft. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. I've had a dream that was really disturbing to me. I don't know if this is something that you've had experiences. You know, our protagonist, Nathaniel Peasley, mm-hmm. is having these dreams of the past. where he Or he thinks they're dreams of the past, that he... He was psychically transported into an alien body in Mm -hmm. Earth's prehistory. Yeah, yeah. I had a dream last night that I left a baby named Peter in a a car. I have a baby myself, but his name's Albert. His name's not Peter. So this was a totally different baby. It's a totally different baby. And I don't know if you've had this, but the dream starts where I wake up in the morning and go, where's baby Peter? Uh And then, oh my God. He's in the car. I left him in the car. So you have absolutely no control over it. It's not yeah. like I made a mistake. The, yeah. the thing has already happened. But the fear was there. Yeah. Oh, my God. I was horrified. And he was. He was. The, I left the baby in the car. He was fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then I felt horrible and I was so upset. And pow- I was so powerless in that dream because I didn't even get a chance to make a mistake. I was dealing with the repercussions of a mistake that didn't even really exist yeah do you have that is that happening oh yeah i mean i have dreams where i feel like i did like i did something or cheating dreams i have actually sometimes where it's yeah like i'm like oh did i do that and and you wake up and you're so glad that it was a dream yes you know, you have absolutely this rush of relief i don't know if you have this problem but like i don't really have access to uh fear horror stories are supposed to fill you with this dread and fear right and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. but it never happens i mean i read them and maybe sometimes later i'll think about something and it'll kind of spook me out or scare me mm-hmm. but i watch a lot of horror movies none of them really i mean you jump yeah sometimes you have nightmares and you wake up and your heart is beating and you just you get that touch of that 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 hand of fear touches you you know yeah. and it's like that's it still happens and it'll never change i guess you'll always have dreams like that but those are the worst worst nightmares oh, God. i had a nightmare a couple of weeks ago where i thought somebody was just standing outside the window above my bed and looking in and that was it. That, yeah, that was a dream chat. That didn't really happen. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Lackey. <laughs> no, but I mean, there wasn't anything. Nothing happened. For some reason, it was the scariest sensation ever. I woke up. I was so horrified. I had to, like, cuddle up with my wife because I was scared. <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly. <laughs> To tie it into the story, though, I mean, he talks a lot about these dreams, and he seems to have this very coherent remembrance of everything that he saw in his dream. Yeah. But I think that the oddness of it probably makes, and the touch of memory, like that maybe this is something that happened to me, has got to be awful. And and when he looks down and sees that he's not in his own body, we talked about that last time. Yes. I can only imagine what that horrible sensation is like. It's just the powerlessness, I think, is really what really... Yeah makes you panic and there's just you don't have any control and losing that control is where things just your, your life falls apart well you think it does because of course you yeah. think it's real and the protagonist nathaniel peasley he had seven years of his life where he just doesn't have any memory of it and another consciousness came over and recapping quickly took over and did all this strange stuff that he doesn't know anything about nobody really knows anything about and when he came back, he kind of tried to retrace his steps to find out what he did. And he was involved in cults and supernatural business. Uh-huh. And, and all the while, he's remembering after 
this, he's remembering or having dreams about where he was previously in that seven years. We know that he has psychically switched bodies with the alien from the past and himself. Uh -huh. Where we left off, he was just talking about what he remembered of this civilization. Now, he keeps telling himself these are just dreams, but it's so strange that they're very specific and he remembers all these details. And, and the literature backs up what he remembers. And he thinks maybe it was from having read this stuff that he's having the dream. Right. When he During the seven years that he doesn't remember anything. But in fact, what it is is that it all really happened. It all really happened. So we left off in the middle of chapter four, and these dreams and memories that he's having give him quite a bit of detail about this ancient race that took him over. Yeah. We heard a little bit about last time we talked about how they were kind of genocidal maniacs, uh, which some people think maybe they aren't. I can't remember who it was wrote on the forums of the comments. Well, do you think anything about killing an insect? Sure. I mean, I do it all the time. Or, or animals, if you're a meat eater. Yeah. There's a point there. I mean, it makes you, it actually kind of brought the horror home to me. I was like, wait, yeah, I'm complaining about them as if human morals apply to these things at all. They're just better than us. I mean, they can freaking fly through time. I don't know how to do that. Yeah, and space. <laughs> yeah, and space. What am I getting self-righteous about? Yeah. We should serve our monster masters. You sell out so fast, Pfeiffer. <laughs> Man, I'm going to fight <clears throat> them. Well, anyway, they start talking about uh, where we left off. He was discussing how the the great race has this library, this archives, and it's uh -huh. subterranean, and it's this huge repository of information. And they've got these gigantic books that are made with of this kind of cellulose fabric, and the books are stored in these grayish metal cases, and they're just piled up. It's just this huge place, and it was made to withstand any kind of cataclysm that would happen on Earth, any kind of earthquakes, any kind of, you know, because these guys are super smart and they anticipate these things. They also have submarines, they have electric-powered <laughs> flying vehicles, and lots of cities, not just a few cities. There's cities all over the place. Yeah. Before they split, there are also a race of black-snouted winged creatures who were the dominant stock after the great race all traveled into the future. What's that about? I don't know. I try to look it up and see if there was any more information about it or if it ever gets mentioned in any other stories, and it doesn't. You know, one thing that I found interesting about this, and it seems to be a thread, is that he rarely has, uh, this was in the mound and, and in Mountains of yeah. there's always this period of degradation is when you find the race. So I think at some point in the story he says, you know, the science were carried to this unbelievable height and art was wonderful, but when I was there, it had already, it had passed its crest and meridian. It had already died down like yeah. things weren't as good as they used to be and it's this kind of like nostalgic pining that he just has in his nature he can't shut off like he can't yeah. visit the whole race when things are great he's always 20 years off like even when he enters an alien race he was still born in the wrong time you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> well i think you know it's his commentary on how he sees society that it's sort of devolving yeah. even though we're at a technological height that culturally he feels that things have really fallen to the wayside, art and literature and, and those types do, of things. Do you feel that way? No, not at all. Technologically, we're in a great place. People have little computers in their hands that they're walking around with all the time. Does that make culture suffer? No. Well, I mean, I don't know what you mean by culture, but I mean, from an artistic standpoint, I think that uh, television is now way, not, not specific shows, obviously, are way better uh, than television has ever been. Yeah. Like there's some TV shows that are so well thought out and have such an emotional impact and well acted and well shot and the special effects are you know amazing but compared to you know even older shows where you go oh that's pretty good for its time but now it's it's amazing and and i yeah. feel like there's so many different books and so many different writers that 
all these different ideas are being explored and people are talking about them and things. Now, of course, there is kind of a lowest common denominator of society that that still likes reality television. But I guess it's it's the idea is that you things are so diverse now you can like what we do. We have there's such a specific niche. Yeah. But there's a distribution network for it. So we're able to make this show even though it's a small pocket of society. Of course. Enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I mean, not just us, but other people that are interested. I mean, all all of these ideas are being explored and people are able to do this in their spare time, yeah. which before nobody could have done these things. We have a lot more leisure time. That's one thing he talks about the great race is that they're so technologically advanced that they don't they don't have to work very much because technology takes care of everything have all this leisure time to pursue art and literature and things and that's and we do to an extent i mean the united states is not so hot about letting people have time off <laughs> but the uk yeah. and most of europe does i mean you get plenty of time off from work yeah that's that european style socialism that uh, people are afraid of exactly the european style socialism lovecraft seems to be preoccupied with the idea that society advances to an extent where people can spend their time appreciating art and I think it's a really noble kind of wish that he has. I mean, we talk a lot about failings that Lovecraft had in the sociological viewpoint. Yeah. But in this respect, I thought he had this embrace of automation and a wish that people didn't just have to work so hard. Yeah. And and, and that's his socialism comes out. And, you know, later yeah. in his life, he just kind of wished that people would share resources a little more so that we were able to make better art. And just have a better culture and, yeah. and elevate everyone instead of just, you know, certain people not getting too political. Try not to. Try not to. Yeah. In this particular story, it talks about they don't even have domesticated animals because they've gone completely mechanical with it. Yeah, their uh, their meat is like synthetic. Yeah, well, they have synthetic and, and vegetable material. That's the stuff mm. that they eat with. There's other races and stuff that they have to fight with. That's a big, a big interesting plot stuff here that factors into Lovecraft's world history, you know, of his mythos. Yeah. That they go, go in these submarines and then they find these ruins of incredible sunken cities. Right. That means that there's even older civilizations that exist and then they have to talk about the old ones that they were that they've had wars and things with the with the old ones that, that all is very confusing to me this has nothing to do with mountains of madness old ones or elder things right it does the other things because he says they're the star-headed ones that live in and antarctica so he is talking so those about have been that. referenced in the story yes and they're, and they're not, not the monsters they're not the monsters of this the the, the ones that are in the ruins and the trap doors those those are flying polyps I just got tested for those last week. Negative, thankfully. And uh, (laughs) these polypy things, when he describes them, I think what was confusing about it is that the flying polyps don't have any... Well, they're they're not the same matter as we are. They're sort of kind of out of tune. Sort of like the Migos. Remember how the Migos were not of the same matter as we are. Now, the Elder Things... Well, that was a big thing in Mountains of Madness. They were the Shoggoth-based stuff, and they were all made of... Yeah, as as were the essentially that we are based on yeah. Shoggoth, and the other things. The other things were solid, like we yeah. are too. So they're but we're Cthulhu, all the same. Exactly. You get him with a ship, and he explodes into smoke, and then he yeah. reforms. And... He's not. He's made of this weird partial real stuff, partial other material that's not like the Migo or she. By the way, we can't assume that Cthulhu is male. You know the band Fields of the Nephilim. I do. They have a song about Cthulhu, and uh, they refer to her as a she. I always thought that was interesting. Fields of the Nephilim is a great band, by the way. Everybody should. No, that's cool stuff. And uh, yeah, you know why not? Why not be? I mean, I think Cthulhu's having a gender seems pretty. And that's one of the the Uthians don't have gender either. They say that they um, they have spores and they reproduce in water, and then they take mm-hmm. care of their young, and then 
they also, if anybody's defective, they just kill them and then burn their body. Oh, yeah. They're kind of eugenicists. They treat them with respect, but they still. (laughs) Well, I like that there's these guys from the great race that escape because their body is sick or they they have a a, a terminal disease. So they're like, I'm getting out of here. They time travel. And that's yeah. against the law. They're not supposed to do that, right? Right. Yeah, no, no, but they do, and they get away. And then they, the poor chump that's stuck in the body, they say, they go, they're really nice to him, but eventually they kill them. They put him in hospice care, and it's just some human from, like, 1935 going, what? <laughs> Sorry, you're not getting your body back, and you can't be in this one, so we're going to just put you down. Sorry. That's crazy. But these uh, these flying polyp things, these creatures, uh-huh. they were here before the Yithians. Now, that's they, they, we call them Yithians because Yith is the place, the planet that they came from before they came to Earth. And these polyps were on Earth before they were. These polyps had these windowless basalt ruins. And then we talked about that in the previous ones. There were these older structures that they stayed away from. And it was because that was left over from the flying polyp civilization, which the Yithians just totally devastated and rocked them, like with their electro guns that they had and stuff. (laughs) But how do you know that they are the... I was confused. Now, the first time we talked about the story, we were talking about what are these things under towers, and Mm -hmm. neither of us knew, but somehow you figured it out. Yeah, I just read read a little bit more specifically. I went into the the text and gone, okay, this is... It describes what they are right here. Okay. And I I can even read it for you really quick. According to these scraps of information, the basis of the fear was a horrible elder race of half-polypus, utterly alien entities which had come through space from immeasurable distant universes and had dominated the Earth and three other solar planets about 600 million years ago. They were only partially material, as we understand matter, and their time of consciousness and media of perception differed wholly from those of terrestrial organisms. From that description, that's not what we were talking about. That's not the Elder Things, which I thought maybe the Elder Things, or the Shagas, because those are both a physical matter. Maybe they could be Migos, but they say that they, they have aerial motion despite absence of wings or any other visible means of levitation. So they're not Migos, because Migos have wings. Okay, yeah, I'm looking at the passage now. So it is there. I don't know how I missed it. Yeah, so they are completely different things. And if I hate ma- making reference to the, the role-playing game, even though I love it and play it, they're referred to as flying polyps in the game. So they are for sure a different entity. Well, that's what I was trying to get at as, as you went and looked at the source book uh, for Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. Okay. I didn't. I don't I don't touch those I don't touch any of those books when doing research for the show ever. Really? No, never do. I guess I don't either. Because I know that it's been filtered through somebody that's trying to make a role-playing game and I right. I don't want that. I want the pure material, the original stuff and be able to just focus on that. And Joshi's when I look at his stuff, he's really good about citing his sources and where he gets his information from. So if he says something, I can go back and look at it. In fact, I've right. even but I've caught him a few times in some of his books where he uh, one of the stories that he did a description of what happened in the story. He was wrong. It wasn't what happened in the story at all. Is this really happening? Are you you taking on Joshi on the show right now? I'm not. Well, I'm not taking him on. It's just. I mean, sounds like it. You know what? Next week, Chad. I'll have it. I'll have it ready to go, and I'll go. Okay. I'll, it was in Lovecraft Encyclopedia. His explanation of what the story was was wrong. Wow. One error so far out of everything I've read from Joshi. <laughs> no, I know. The guy. The guy is amazing, but he's human, and uh, yeah. mistakes mistakes are made. In fact, maybe I have an older edition of it. And he might have already corrected it. I don't know. Yeah. But I'll have to take a look and see. So we get all this information about the alien race. Back to the the flying polyps. The Yithians drove them underground into their ruins, and they Uh stayed subterranean, and they sort of lived in these underground areas. And over the thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, however long that they existed, 
these polyps evolved and got better and stronger and the great race was afraid of them and somehow knew that they were getting more and more powerful. Actually, not somehow. They travel through time, so they know eventually <laughs> they're going to come they up and everything. get them. They know everything. They know everything. So they know they have to get out of there before they show up. And they go, well, it must not be a big deal because no other race in, in history of, of humanity gets bugged by these flying polyps. So it's not a problem. Uh -huh. We don't. We shouldn't find it. We should just skip ahead to the future and then deal with it that way. And that ends chapter four. And then in chapter five, we get the letter that kind of leads to the whole massive conclusion of the story and with, you know, where we were at the beginning. Before he gets the letter, his life is back to normal as in he's you know, got his job he's not even really thinking about this stuff too much yeah he's rationalized it out so well yeah that he is really just doing psychological studies of his own dreams and publishing these articles and yeah treating and himself as this patient who's crazy he publishes these drawings and things of the hieroglyphs that he has saw in his dreams and he's publishing them just because he thinks his psychosis is very specific and wants to document it but it gets uh -huh. published the Journal of the American Psychological Society. That publishing is what leads the letter to, to get to him. And the letter comes from Pilbara, Western Australia. We don't need to tell you the whole content of it here, but basically what does it say? Hey, I, I saw the what you wrote and these hieroglyphs that you said you had supposedly in dreams. Well, in Australia here, we've discovered these ruins and they have hieroglyphs that match what you saw in your dreams. Yeah. And he start, talks about one of the things, this is this really neat thing. As far as I know, I couldn't find anything on the web about this. But the in the letter, the guy mentions that the, the black people, the aborigines, uh -huh. they have these old legends about Budai, the gigantic old man that lies asleep for ages under the ground with his head in his arm and mm -hmm. will someday awake and eat up the world. Yeah. I was like, that is so cool. So I went online and tried to find more about Budai. I couldn't find anything. Did I, did Lovecraft make up Budai? Is that a, or is that a real? I don't know. Because I couldn't find Squat about it. Maybe he spells it in a different way. But if any listeners out there, if you find it, yeah, yeah. please tell us. Because that's such a cool thing. It's really neat. It's so specific that it seems like he must have grabbed it from some Aborigine mythology. But Yeah, I guess. But uh, So anyway, the Aborigines, there's this area that they stay away from because they think this is where the gigantic old man sleeps and that's where these hieroglyphics are on these huge stones which are like three by two by two feet there's a bunch of them this totally freaks out peasley when he gets this letter well this would be the same as if somebody wrote you a letter that said we we've discovered your son peter <laughs> he's been in a car i mean oh God, it, it's, no, it's yeah you're right it really is the same revelation like what this stuff yeah. i've been talking myself out of is real yeah Pretty great. Yeah, it, it's pretty pretty awesome. And then at this point, Peasley says, Miskatonic, we got to do an expedition here. We got to get this going on yeah. because this is huge. And, of course, Miskatonic University, who, who are privy to these types of things, <laughs> say, of course, let's put our, our best man on it, Professor William Dyer. Cool, man. It's great when the, uh, the stable of characters. This is the guy from Mountains At the Mountains of Madness, yes. And he knows the truth. Yeah. From at the Mountains of Madness. And this is after that expedition. So why is he doing this? I don't I don't know why he would do something like that. But then he, he, <laughs> but in the story, too, he, he, he doesn't really do anything. You know, there's no big payoff. He doesn't tie it in with the elder things. or He's just there on the expedition. As well as this guy, Ashley, who's from the Department of Ancient History, and Freeborn, who is an anthropologist, and then his son, Wingate. And they all get on a right. steamer ship and head on off to Australia. And the guy who had written the letter was Robert McKenzie. Yeah. Who, uh, was a miner. Yeah, because they have a gold mine that's over in the area, and that's how they found out about it. And he came over to help them set up for their expedition because he knew Australia, and he knew what they were going to need and right. and the and the terrain and all that stuff. 
They took a, <laughs> on March 28th, 1935, they had a leisurely trip across the Atlantic <laughs> and Mediterranean. <laughs> you know, played some shuffleboard, had a nice, some nice meals on the captain's table, hang out with Charo. <laughs> they, uh, uh, they go through the Suez Canal down the Red Sea. Wait, no, I'm going back to this. How can you have a leisurely trip when you had these dreams? <laughs> I don't know, man. What are you going to do? Be panicked the whole time? At some point, you're going to succumb to shuffleboard. <laughs> you have to pass the time somehow. I guess you're right. I, I relent, Pfeiffer. You. Well, they get it. <laughs> Thank you. So they arri- the expedition arrives around May. They get their stuff together, and they're ready to go out there in the desert and try and excavate more of these blocks. On June 3rd, he sees what is the first block, and it... You know, obviously it freaks him out. He Everything is recognized. It's familiar. That's what he keeps saying. And he sees it and it's like, I've seen this before. Not just, I've seen that symbol before. I've seen like this block before. I've seen all of them. And they find a ton of them. There's uh, like a 1,250 of these blocks. Right. And they're in varying states of erosion and decay. And by the way, I had a huge appreciation for the amount of detail that Lovecraft didn't go into about this expedition. Yeah. Like, that weighs down Mountains of Madness so much. By the way, in the last show as well, I said that I liked this story better than Mountains of Madness and Call of Cthulhu, and I was, I don't know what crack I was smoking. This is not a better story than Call of Cthulhu. I do like it better than Mountains of Madness, but I don't like it better than Call of Cthulhu. I shouldn't have but said so why, why did you say that? What prompted you? Did you reread Cthulhu and then go, oh, you know what? This is No, no. I think we were, I was just, you know, all ginned up on the story. I was just, like, excited about it, so I was just saying things that weren't true. Yeah. I just, I thought about it after I finished uh, editing the episode. I heard myself say that, and I was like, that's not, why, why? <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to make that correction. But they, they have an airplane with them. Yes, and Wingate flies, I guess. He's the... Yeah, they go to survey things where they want to... They're looking for which way to keep excavating. They have certain area that they're looking in that's based on the discoveries that Mackenzie has already made. But right. they, our protagonist has this pull or this feel. Yeah, it's his memory. It's he, he remembers yeah. going this way, and he's like, "Wow, this really is familiar. I have to go this way." Like, like you said, it's a pull. Yeah, it's the northeast. Usually to the north or northeast. He feels like there's something there that he needs to go see or do or, or something. He's having some kind of insomnia at night. He has this habit of going out for walks anyway, uh-huh. so he keeps walking in that direction. Which seems like a bad idea to me. Like, why are people letting him do that? It's Well, I'm, maybe they don't know that he is doing it. I mean, if it's yeah. at night and everybody's asleep, he goes out on these walks. But he's a man. He can do whatever he wants, I guess. He so should. he's going on these walks well, at night. I just can't imagine going through something like yeah. this. You know, just losing seven years of your life, losing your most of your children and, and your wife, thinking, finally getting your life back together and going, okay, you know what? I had this bad episode. Everything's fine. What? Yeah. Oh, my God. Everything that I thought was <laughs> not real seems real well maybe there's an explanation maybe there's something that i don't know and he's there hopefully maybe that's what his pull is he doesn't know what his pull is maybe there'll be something there that will show him oh you know what i was here before maybe in that seven years that i was Mm. gone that will be what i find maybe that's what he's hoping for then he could rationalize it away again yeah god it's 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 a horrific concept to to think about An indication of my poor nervous health can be gained from my response to an odd discovery which I made on one of my nocturnal rambles. It was on the evening of July 11th when a gibbous moon flooded the mysterious hillocks with a curious pallor. Wandering somewhat beyond my usual limits, I came upon a great stone which seemed to differ markedly from any we had yet encountered. 
It was almost wholly covered, but I stooped and cleared away the sand with my hands, later studying the object carefully and supplementing the moonlight with my electric torch. Unlike the other very large rocks, this one was perfectly square-cut, with no convex or concave surface. It seemed, too, to be of a dark basaltic substance wholly dissimilar to the granite and sandstone and occasional concrete of the now familiar fragments. Suddenly, I rose, turned, and ran for the camp at top speed. It was a wholly unconscious and irrational flight, and only when I was close to my tent did I fully realize why I had run. Then it came to me. The queer, dark stone was something which I had dreamed and read about, and which was linked with the uttermost horrors of the eon-old legendary. It was one of the blocks of that basaltic elder masonry which the fabled great race held in such fear the tall, windowless ruins left by those brooding, half-material alien things that festered in Earth's nether abysses and against whose wind-like invisible forces the trapdoors were sealed and the sleepless sentinels posted. The evidence of the buildings of the polyps. Yeah, that's what it is. It's crazy. Discovery. (laughs) That's not what he was hoping for. (laughs) <laughs> you right. know, he, that's not the explanation that he was, <laughs> oh, wait, that was real. And not yeah. only was that real, the thing that these uber-powerful creatures were afraid of, that's what I just yeah. stumbled upon. You're right. He was hoping that, you know, maybe the stuff that I'll find out here will be backup for the myths that I read that got me into this situation to begin with. Exactly. But this is just all too real and specific. This is on. Yeah. <laughs> You know, no kidding around anymore. It's happening. And that's what gets us in chapter six. Into chapter six. And I think that's where we're going to have to call call it for this. We didn't do any announcements at the top of the show just because I feel like we talk a little too much at the top. Yeah. So let's do our announcements now. I would hope that uh, we're getting very close to meeting our ransom for our readings of The Hound and uh, The Temple by Anthony Tedesco and Andrew Lehman, respectively. If you could just give us a little money. (laughs) I'm just going to be straight (laughs) up about it. We would like some of your money. (laughs) Yeah. Give it to us uh, now. Please, because we, we need to book studio time if we're going to make this by the end of the month. And yeah, uh, got to make that happen. So we're, we're, we're doing well. We're doing well, but we still need yep. a bit more to cover our costs and pay the actress and everything like that. They deserve recompense. What else do we have to say? April, April 4th, Wednesday at 7 mm-hmm. p.m., at the Traveling Man Lounge, which is not the Traveling Man store, it's this new section that they have, you can go. It's a small venue has 50 seats so the tickets are probably going to go fast in fact we might have already sold out by the time the show actually goes i can't believe that really it's possible but try if you want to buy tickets if you want to buy tickets you can get them at the traveling man store in leeds or you can buy them online at insmithhouse.com and we'll put a link up to that in the show notes. Go to insmithhouse.com. You can find there's only going to be 30 tickets available there. The rest of them you have to get at the Traveling Man or try and get a hold of me or Chad, and we'll set you up somehow. But they're going to probably go fast. So once they're gone, they're gone, and that's it. And is Paul going to be at the event? Paul is going to be at the event. He is going to be our gateway to the internet. So as the show is being broadcast live, and he's going to do it through his Yogg-Sothoth feed, that's the only way that you'll be able to hear the show live as it's being done. He will be reading viewer comments and and input because we're going to try and interact with our audience, even people that aren't so there. Cool, so if people have questions or, they, you know, the, the comments or certain like that, Paul's going to be the voice. He's going to be the voice of of the Internet. And we're going to have live music from Corn Zero of 
Zeitgeist Zero, which is a kind of a cool. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. So, yeah. Wait, we're gonna have a live music. In yes, we're gonna have a live music. Oh, my yes. It's so great. And he's got some. And he's a bit, huge fan of the show, so he knows what the background music is like. And he yeah. goes, "Oh yeah, I've got these tones, and I'm, he's gonna have a keyboard well, I'm there." I'm a huge fan of Zeitgeist Zero. I love oh, there you go. He's ready to go and do some stuff. We're gonna have it mixed. We're gonna have it. It's gonna sound great. That's um, amazing. There might even be video. <gasps> There might be video. Who knows? Who knows? But this is happening April 4th. So it's a, a month away, a month from when we're, yeah, it's we're recording soon. this. So it doesn't give people a lot of time. I know Leeds, it's a Wednesday. Unfortunately, it's the only time that Chad, Andrew, and myself were going to be in the same place at the same time. So we just took right. advantage of it. I know Wednesday's not the most optimum time. That's why it's a small venue. But we would love to have the place full and meet people. Maybe afterwards, we're going to go out to Pab Cafe in Leeds, which is this cool sci-fi place. It'll be awesome. we Lovecraft Night party in Leeds. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And if, if you're a stalker and you want to start following any of us, <laughs> this is the best way to do it. It's the best way to do it. Cool. Oh, I'm so looking forward to it. Well, so hopefully people will come to that. All right. Well, uh, there's that and there are the ransoms and uh, we want to thank Andrew Lehman, of course, for doing the very the one reading that we actually worked into the show today because we're being so long-winded. <laughs> um, thank you for that, Andrew. And thank also you, Andrew. to Reber, of course, for continuing to provide excellent music. Oh, man, Reber, uh, I love your music. I love it. It's so good. So uh, we'll be back next week with more uh, Shadow Out of Time. We will finish up we'll... Shadow Out yeah, of Time. Let's finish up next week. Yeah, we're going to finish up Shadow of Time for next next week, for sure. Cool. So there'll be a lot of readings next week, actually. A lot of music. <laughs> Less about our dreams and more about the story. Exactly. But it's going to be fun, and I had fun talking to you today. Anyway. Man, I had a great time, Chad. Hopefully the yeah. audience will have a, a good time as well. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll talk to you again next week. I'm uh, Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!